The other thing that's really set them up for, for this in terms of failure is that, you know, the last 30, 40 years, we've put way too much emphasis on, on career. And we've, we've, really, we've really introduced this idea for a lot of guys that outside of your family, the, the greatest fulfillment you'll, you'll have in life is your job. Welcome to the Acton Line Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. Anthony Bradley, professor of religious studies at the King's College and Acton Research Fellow, sits down with Dan Churchwell, Acton's Director of Program Outreach, to discuss the importance of fatherhood, as well as Dr. Bradley's new research on the good that fraternities do in the way of moral formation of young men. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Welcome to Acton Line. My name is Dan Churchwell, Director of Programs here at the Acton Institute. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Anthony Bradley, Professor of Religious Studies at the King's College in New York City, where he also serves as the Director for the Center for the Study of Human Flourishing. And since 2002, Dr. Bradley has been a Research Fellow here at the Acton Institute. Dr. Bradley holds a Bachelor's of Science in Biological Sciences from Clemson University and his Master of Divinity from the Covenant Theological Seminary and a PhD from Westminster Theological Seminary. Welcome, Dr. Bradley. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're so glad you're here. Um, you're, you, man, you, you have a 20-year history with Acton, and uh, we were just talking about that earlier, and what, what, a, what a great history with us. Um, I'm coming on six years, so you've, you've got me like three times. But uh, I love your new focus of study on um, fatherhood and young men. Um, it's, I think, culminating in a book on fraternities. Is that right? That's correct. And uh, I mean, just an anecdote from me, right the, the last trip, I used to travel so much for Acton, but the last trip I, I took before COVID shut everything down was to Southern California. And every now and then, you know, I have four children and every now and then uh, I was able to take one of my kids on a trip and I brought my son on that trip. And if you remember, you were speaking at that event. I remember that. And to this day, he was like, dad, I know Dr. Anthony Bradley. Because and, and he goes, Dad, he he just stood and talked to me like I was, you know, and, and it just made such an impact that I, I think you had like a 10 minute conversation. I, I don't think it was much longer than that. And he was 13 at the time. And and then then to see your your kind of study through COVID and watch, you know, some of what you're researching uh, on young men and flourishing and. It's really – I see that you not only want to research it, but you embody it as well. And I think – didn't you teach a class? What, tell me about the class a little bit you lead at, at King's in um, – I mean, I don't even know the title, but I've seen you post about it. Tell, tell me about this class. So first of all, it's, it's good to be back here in, in Grand Rapids, and I can't believe it's been 20 years here with the Institute. I, it just hit me today as I was walking around that it's been two decades. I'd, 
had to imagine that. And it's really been a, a fantastic journey. And, and so much of, of what I've learned in my years here at Acton has really informed so much of the current research I'm doing. And, you know, one, one way to make a connection is sort of thinking about the ways that Acton over the years has talked about the importance of family. And this research that I've been doing on masculinity and particularly the formation of young men is so connected to the importance of, of the institution of, of the family. And a few years ago when I was teaching at the Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, I had been doing some reading and had led some weekend retreats and thought, what would it be like to get a group of, of guys to do independent studies together as a group? And to just read a bunch of text on, on manhood and masculinity and just sort of talk about some of the things that we were reading, the good stuff, the bad, what worked, what didn't work, and just kind of get some perspective on, on the masculine journey. And when I came to King's, I've, I, I did the same thing. So recently I had about five guys do independent studies, and they read about 2,000 pages of material different aspects of masculinity in American history. We looked at at it in church, in sports, and in college life. And we just sort of talked about some of the things that we've seen over the last 100, 150 years, and then to also compare those to some of the, the negative pathologies that we've seen in some of the breakdowns today. And let I let them make the connections and draw conclusions based on what we've read. And it's been great. It's been an, an awesome opportunity to take a step back and to just look at this one topic over the last 150 years in our country and allow the students to, to see what was good, what was bad, what worked, what didn't work, what we need to recover, what we need to maybe dispel and to see, kind of take the best out of that and and inform very good and and helpful understandings of what it means for them to be to be men. And I, I, I will say this for the record, there's a pretty good track record, I'm proud to say, out of that class, uh, out, of, out of those guys you know, doing those independent studies. I just got a text from one of my students two days ago who just got engaged. Nice. And so there's a high, there's a high degree. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the math here pretty soon. But a high percentage of the men that come through that class are either engaged or married within two years of finishing that coursework. Mm-hmm. And that those are good milestones too. Um, I mean, it sounds like a graduate seminar at the undergraduate level. I mean, it sounds like a lot of rich conversation would happen, and you can go a lot of different places, especially with a smaller class like that. That um, and and this this research seems to come on the heels of some of your overcriminalization work, like your your latest book, and now you're moving in. So it's a related space. I would think. Did, did it? Uh, immediately emerge from that study, or is this something that you've been thinking about for a while? Great question. It's actually it's a little bit of both. I, I've been I've been essentially studying one topic over the last several years, and have been exploring different aspects of that. And again, as I as I begin with, it has a I'm, I'm researching the family and and the impact of family formation. On, on on the development of children, and the impact that 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 family that family formation has on kids as they enter into adolescence and young adulthood. And I've seen in the data on criminal justice what happens when when family formation 
collapses and how that tends to, to be a predictor for criminality, particularly in low-income communities. And now I'm, I'm sort of also thinking about the ways in which sort of family formation, moral formation in the family began to speak into some of the social pathologies that we're seeing and masculine behavior on college campuses in terms of drug abuse, substance abuse, sexual assault, property damage, and, and, and things like that. So it's, it's basically overlapping topics focused on the role of family formation in terms of what it produces, particularly in young men in adolescent and, and young adulthood. So the fraternity is, I mean, if you think about, you, you mentioned a lot about moral formation and those kinds of things. Um, I remember I grew up in a good evangelical home, stable, um, mother and father, two sisters. And, you know, we didn't, a popular culture wasn't a big, super big deal in our house, but my friends had HBO. So we always went out and hung out at my friend's house, right? And uh, I remember the first time, I mean, my first conscious memory of what I understood a fraternity to be was I saw a rerun of Animal House, right? I mean, and I think for a lot of it, you know, 44 years old, came out in 1978. And then it's only then um, that mythos is exacerbated in all the news stories you hear and read and see. So, I mean – it seems like you're going against the popular cultural trend of what a frater- you know. It seems like you're saying fraternities are good, or or at least have poten- potentiality to be. Is, is that right? Am I understanding you rightly? Yeah, I'm. I'm actually going on record saying that fraternities are great places for the formation of young men, and uh, the stories that we see. I mean, there's about 800 chapters across the country, and the stories that we see in the news of when frat. Fraternity life goes badly. Those are the outlier cases. I mean, most fraternities are made up of young men who want friendships. They want they want a, a context where they get support. Where they want to, they want a context where they have encouragement. They want to have fun. They want to be in a community where they have brothers. You'll often hear stories of guys saying, "I only have a sister, and this is the first time in my life I've had brothers." And so there are all sorts of, of reasons that, that guys join fraternities. And that Animal House movie, unfortunately, unfortunately, has come to shape too much of what guys believe college is like, period. And every single fraternity movie after Animal House has been basically a variation on that theme. Yeah. But that's not really what Greek life is intended to be or what it actually is. I mean, when I was in a fraternity at Clemson, I'm a member of, of Alpha Phi Alpha. Our, my, my fraternity life wasn't like that at all. And were there some fraternities at Clemson that, that were, were sort of uh, analogous to that, that, that film? Absolutely. But the majority of fraternities uh, on on campuses in America are not like what we see in the Zac Efron movies in an animal house. They're just a bunch of regular guys who are trying to figure out how to have friends and have fun and have guys who support them. And they want to be around like-minded people. I mean, a lot of people probably don't realize is that guys who are in fraternities academically outperform guys that aren't. That's kind of a standard expression of the academic life if if you're in a fraternity on a college campus. And so there's there's other reasons they get obscured by the news stories of things that go that go badly. Yeah, and <clears throat> you mentioned, you know, 
the, this idea or, or the question of what do fraternities provide? What what do they provide? And you, you mentioned better grades and some social cohesion. But what are some other things that fraternities provide to young men when they're in college? That's a fantastic question, sir. I, I sort of focus on uh, a few things in the, in the book that I'm writing. Uh, first is that it provides a context of acceptance. You know, one of the things that we're seeing in adolescent life, sort of grades K to 12, there's a lot of isolation and alienation where guys don't have close friends. Um, they don't know how to make friends. They don't have people that know them in terms of the good, the bad, and the ugly. They don't feel accepted in terms of, of having people who, who care about them just because of the, the person that they are. And so just having people accept them for who they are is, is really, really huge. Uh, secondly is friendship. It's connected to acceptance, but there is this sense of, of, of a, a lot of guys join fraternities because they're longing to have those three or four really close best friends that will be in their weddings and they will do life together. And they're hoping that fraternity life will give them these super close, intimate friendships with people who are going to support them and care for them uh, no matter what. Uh, thirdly is that guys need tribes. I mean, guys need to be part of groups. Uh, men thrive not in isolation. This idea of being the renegade, of, of sort of I can do it on my own, of being Superman, that is not reality. Men thrive in groups. There's something normal about that because hum human persons, we all thrive in groups. You're born into a family, and that family is that first community that, that infuses life and ambition and agency and efficacy into you. And guys don't want to go to college and not have that. So all guys need a tribe. They need a group of guys who will keep them accountable, who will keep them sharp, who will encourage them, who will inspire them, who will support them. So that, that need for, for participation and acceptance by a group of guys is really, really important because it speaks back to this idea of wondering, am I the kind of person that people will rely on to add value to a particular space? And if fraternity says, yes, come on in. We, we want you, we need you, and we expect you to add value here. Uh, fourthly, they want to have fun. Like, surprise. Guys want to go to college and have fun. And I think that's exactly, that, that's exactly consistent with being an 18 to 22-year-old. They should have an enormous amount of fun. I like having fun. Everybody likes to have fun. So, so Greek life provides a context where guys can have fun together. Now, it gets caricatured often in terms of binge drinking and things like that. But if you, I'm following about 2,000 fraternities right now on Instagram, and the things that they post where they're having a really great time include things like this, intramural sports, making food together. I saw one fraternity. It's more of a STEM fraternity. They had a great time one night on a Friday night. They were building robots. Right? So they just want to have fun. And there's so much pressure on students today to perform. There's so much pressure on students to have their entire lives figured out. There's so much pressure on students today 
to have everything that they need to have in order to be these sort of perfect humans without any flaws, that they don't have a place to just sort of unwind and enjoy life. And fraternities are there to say, hey, we will, we have a good time. And that's appealing to a, a 17, 18, a 19-year-old. Uh, lastly, guys draw fraternities because of the networking uh, opportunities and the opportunities for a professional development. So I can just give you an example. A lot of fraternities will have resume workshops. Mm-hmm. They'll bring in alumni to talk about how to interview, how to get jobs. They will use alumni networks to get job placements and things like that. So that professional development part, the professional networking part, those are all that, that that's also a major reason that a lot of guys run fraternities. It's the combination of those five things that really make it appealing. And a lot of guys come out of high school and they know that they want those five things, right? They want acceptance. They want close friends. They want to be a part of a tribe. They want to have fun. They want professional development. They want networking. And where else on a college campus is a guy going to find that? Outside of sports, what's left? And so fraternities are really wide open as places to, to meet those needs. And and statistically, too, it's, it's difficult. I mean, if you... I, w- I was a professor for a decade, and and it was trending heavy then. But even even more so now, the numbers of men entering college uh, are precipitously low. I mean, it, it, I see sixty forty splits. I see sixty five thirty five. I mean, in your research, is, are you seeing that sociologically? Like, what what is your take on why so few men are entering college in the first place? Let alone a fraternity after that. Yeah. So we're having fewer fewer male students graduate high school as well. That, that's a part of it. And then secondly, you're right, on any given year, on, on any given campus, 61, 61% of new students are, are female students. And we see this across the board in terms of, of degree level. So this is true for undergrad students. In terms of graduates now, we see this with – Who's predominantly getting master's degrees? Women. Uh, slightly uh, in, in terms of PhDs and doctorates, is, it's also now sloping toward, toward women. And what, one of the things that we're seeing that's raised questions for lots of us is a lot of guys just don't know why they're here. They don't know what, what role or purpose they serve in society in the future. They don't know why society needs them. And why go to college? I mean, why go if I don't know, A, what I'm going to do? And secondly, if I am not really motivated to participate in culture anyway because the culture says they don't need me. So there's a lot of resignation that's happening right now across across the country with young men. They've just resigned in part because they don't think that they matter and the culture isn't asking anything of them. The culture is not saying, hey, we need a bunch of guys to do this. There's also been, in fairness, some changes in, in the marketplace and in technology where we, our economy is no longer built on, on anyone's physical strength. I mean, we've done a great job of using technology to not make human physical strength very necessary. And so, and so if you think about the ways in which we, we've invited men to participate in the economy in, in the past, that's not needed anymore, right? We don't need to lift anything or build anything with our hands. And so there's just a lot of, of 
confusion and there's just a lot of, of uncertainty about why I am needed. And that's going to demotivate someone to enroll in college, especially if they have to take out school loan debt to do it. <clears throat> yeah, the the debt pieces. I mean, and the, I, I think granted, right, that we're talking about something that's very complex, and, and there's multivariate layers here that's go, that are going on. But um, one, this idea of resignation. I mean, it is. It's also true, right? There's a, a sense of the breakdown of just the family in general. Like, I mean, because you're talking about somebody coming to college at 18 or 19. I mean, some would argue that, that, that a lot of formation has already been set. And, you know, that, that 19 years in, um, and, and I know there's debate in the psychological fields about this, but much of that formation has already, I mean, ha the habits have been formed, if you will. Um, why do you think, you know, obviously it's good for the, for the men, young men in, in college to do that, but what are some areas you're seeing that might be areas of weakness in um, in the younger? I mean, why, why, why do young men come with such anxiety, such craving? Um, you know, what, what is that – what is developing in them at 8, 9, 10, 11 that, that's creating the scenario at 19 or 20? There's a psychologist named Karen Ornay. Uh, she practiced in New York City in the – in the early to mid 20th century. And she, she wrote a lot about, about resignation. And she says that for most, for most young men, for many young men, she, she talks about in terms of them having their wings clipped at some point. That is, that is you, have a, uh, you have a boy who is sort of normal, sort of like all the images of, of Prince Louis that we saw uh, during the, the, the Queen's uh, Platinum Jubilee. What's he doing? Making faces, being fidgety, right? Making jokes, whatever. Yeah. He's a happy kid. And she says that something happens. Some sort of trauma, some sort of event, some sort of neglect where the boy's wings get clipped. A divorce. It could be a tragic death. It could be an illness. It could be... Physical abuse, it could be sexual abuse, it could be bullying, that something happens in the boy's life that clips his wings. And he loses his motivation to participate in self-mastery. He doesn't want to be good at anything. He just wants to be left alone. He doesn't want to cause any trouble. He doesn't want to push over any apple carts. He doesn't want to stir up anything. He just wants to be left alone. He might have great grades, but he wants to be left alone. Just let me play my video games. Let me have my two or three friends. Don't ask me to do anything. And what, what Professor Orne says is that, that this develops and cultivates this sense of resignation where they just simply want to be left alone. The classic example of this is like the pothead. Right. They aren't troublemakers, but leave them alone, mm -hmm. right? And, they, and they're willing to retreat into the world of the internet to be alienated from themselves and, and, and the rest of us by watching hours of YouTube videos, watching hours of TikTok videos, playing video games for hours with friends across the world, 
But the, the massive story there, the one consistent theme is like, leave me alone. And that sense of resignation often be often is a is a consequence of them having their wings clipped at some point during early childhood, and 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 Dr. Orne basically says that this is common when you have parents who are narcissistic and are so focused on themselves that they aren't providing the two things that that boys need in the home. One is they need, a, they need a sense of warmth and safety from their parents. You can come to us. We're going to, we're going to hug you and love you and show you affection. But then secondly, they also need to know that they are not the center of the universe and that they need to know that they have to sacrificially be in relationship with other people. And so if they're in a home that's warm but also coddling, where the parents are basically their, their maids and their butlers, that creates a disaster, right? But they, they, need, to, they need to know that, that their parents love them and care for them, but they also need to know that they are not the most important thing in, in existence. And when, when marriages become about the children and not about the marriage, ultimately the children suffer because the children become sort of idols, and that, that, that level of idolatry can open the door inadvertently for some of the resignation because the, the boy isn't really able to develop uh, uh, properly. And, and, and that's one of the things that we're, we're begin- – I'm beginning to see more resignation than I am seeing rebellion. Mm-hmm. Right? That's kind of the 1960s, 70s, early 80s was like the totally. rebel. Yeah. That is not the high school kid now. The, high, the typical high school kid now who is – who's a drug abuser, an alcohol abuser, he's not a rebel. He's resigned. And that's something, that's something very, very different. Now, now, are these across income stratas? I mean, are you studying across the board or is that right? Absolutely. This is, this is, across, this is across income because it has more to do with, with what happened to him in early adolescence. So there's no difference between a young man who's, self, who, who's self-resigned out of poverty or the 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 son of the the trust fund kid right if they both have their wings clipped they're both going to be self-resigned the difference is when you're poor when you're low income the way that you live that out it's going to look different than if you are a very high income family you can self-resign by going to a great college and, and getting really average below average grades and just doing drugs Right and playing video games and and participating in, in sex outside of marriage, you can just resign that way. If you are low income, it may mean getting a part time job at Target, just sitting at home doing nothing, uh, or or getting involved in self medicating by drug and alcohol use as well. I mean, those those are some of the things I have in common. And it's really interesting that there's some context where these boys will find each other. And interesting friendships develop uh, because what they have in common is self-resignation, and they're, and they're both using drugs and alcohol to do that. Now, now, from your studies, I mean, we're recording this on June 6th, 2022, and what is that, 78 years ago, uh, tens of thousands of troops were landing on D-Day. 
And, you know, is it nostalgia to say things were be- – I mean, that was obviously a very galvanizing thing for a very young cadre of men. Is, is it because there aren't galvanizing things like that? I mean, it I, I, that's – as I say it, it's hyper-simplistic, but obviously that was a major historical event. But is it things like that that are missing? Or, you know, because you said social media and, you know, just watching hours of YouTube. Um, it, it, what else is going on there? That's a, that's a great question. The Cold War back, I mean, we can we can go, go all the way back to the revolution. I would say from 1776 to 1946, if you were raised in this country as a boy, there was a purpose for, for your life that was clear. Whether it was to help the family business, help the family farm, help the family migrate to the country, serve in a war, pick a war, right? There was a purpose. And Warren Farrell talks about this in the book, The Boy Crisis, that we have a massive purpose void right now in the lives of, of boys and young men. They don't know what their purpose is. It's a consequence, I think, of, of us having a lot of wealth. And then secondly, living in times of, and this isn't bad, this is great, just living in times of, of really historic peace. Right. So if you're a seven, 16, 17-year-old and ask, go walk down the street and ask a 16 or 17-year-old, what's your purpose? Why does, the, why does the country need you? Why does the world need you? They are not going to have an answer. When, when students in, enroll in college and you ask them, what's your major? What major do you want to you know, choose? Or ask them that in high school, there's no clear sense that, oh, I need to major in this because the world, the community needs me to do this and this and this and this. It's more like, well, I'll major in this because it provides a good income for me to have a family. So outside of of things like family and having a great house and having kids that play soccer, there isn't this strong sense of transcendent purpose. Do do you see that? Is that correlative? Uh, are, are there? Are you seeing correlations with religious fam- kids that grew up in religious families versus not, or even in religious families? Are they, are they sensing that? Even even in, in in religious families, right? So so one of the things that's happened that I've seen, particularly in a lot of conservative Christian spaces, is that is that we've reduced for men the 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 purpose of life is marriage, family, career. That's that's the purpose. Right, and so choosing choosing vocation, uh, uh, choosing something like a career, it is for the purpose of supporting that. Right? Now that's not bad, but for a lot of guys, that's not big enough. They need something that captures their imagination, something that transcends what is, in some respects, normal. Now a world war transcends marriage and family and career, right? Um, Helping the family farm not to implode, helping your family migrate to a country and get started. Those things are really transcendent of the normal parts of, of, of human life. And I think because there's so much divorce in our culture right now, there's so much family breakdown that kids see even in even in the context of, of Christian communities, even if it's not their own family, they're in a church that's going to have a fair amount of family break uh, a breakdown. I don't think that that the narrative 
that that your main purpose in life is marriage and family is compelling enough because you're looking around saying, well, it's got to be more than this. I cannot tell you what's been shocking to me over the years, just the number of college students who've told me their parents are getting divorced. These are Christian families. Their parents are getting divorced while, while they're in college. And that's something I, I, I wasn't really expecting to experience. But those are the sorts of things that's going to undermine the confidence that, that, that my life can be about those things and, and that my life will be, will be fulfilling. The other thing that's really set them up for, for this in terms of failure is that, you know, the last 30, 40 years, we've put way too much emphasis on, on career, and we've we've really we've really introduced this idea for a lot of guys that outside of your family, the, the greatest fulfillment you'll you'll have in life is your job. And I'll, I'll probably get a lot of controversy for saying this. I think the the um, faith and works movement inadvertently may, may have contributed to this. Again, inadvertently and on purpose. But, but the idea that like work is a place where you can find identity, meaning, and purpose. And, and students are smart because they look at their parents and they say, no, it's not. No, 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 no. My, my, my mom is miserable. My dad is miserable at work. So you're at youth group telling me about faith and work, but I'm go home and I just see them complaining and ranting and depressed. I'm like, that that can't be it. So what else do we have for them? Not much. So there's a massive purpose void, I think, that distinguishes what you would have seen in the 20s and 30s and 40s versus what you have have today. Yeah, and that's it's so interesting to me because I, I just, I mean, just within this last week, saw somebody, I, I tend to agree with you so we can both get in trouble. Um, <clears throat> but I saw somebody in the kind of the free market network talking about this, but they were on the flip side. They were saying, y'all Christians are, and he, this person is a Christian, are idolizing your families too much. You idolize your family and you should be out working more. You should be out earning more. You should be out. So they said that, and, and I, I think there's a lot of, I mean, anxiety among men that, especially if 35% of them are going to college, um, obviously you can make good money outside of college, but usually that's owning your own company, you know, construction company, plumbing, you know, there's a way to do that. Um, But a lot of the paying jobs are these white collar jobs. So, um, I mean, there really is tension even among Christians, even among free marketers about how to, um, how to square this circle. I mean, I've, I've heard you say in another context, though, that place is really important, that friends and cousins growing up around family. And can you just – I have a few questions for you, but can you ex- explain what you mean by that? You know, why, why is place important for a, a young man? So I mean, I'll, I'll, let me address the, the, the first point. And then I'll, I'll get to this. I've never, I've been working with students for over 20 years. I've never in my life had a student crying in my office or over lunch because their dad didn't have a well-paying job. I've never had a student in my office crying saying, I wish my dad had worked more. I've never, I've never had a student in my office crying saying, I wish my dad had gotten a promotion. What I have seen tears over is students saying, I wish my dad had been at home. I wish we had 
instead of going on that one big vacation every year for two weeks, I wish that we had been able to just do a lot of little things throughout the year together. The, the thing that children lament the most about, about their parents' work life is never about the things that we think matter. It's about, it's about time spent together and presence. And so one of the things that I challenge my students to think about is choosing jobs and careers that will allow them to be a fully present parent. Because that's what kids need. And guess what? You don't have to make a lot of money to be a fully present parent. And if you think about the sorts of things that kids actually need to thrive, they need close affection, conversation, and presence more so than they need a vacation to an exotic place. And that, that I believe, is, is something in, in the raising of my generation in the, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s got obscured by this idea that, that kids need, what, what kids really need is the best material context to thrive. And that is not true. Madeline Levine lays this out in a book, The Price of Privilege, the, the most at-risk kids in America. Kids that have the highest substance abuse issues, the highest levels of depression and anxiety, the highest level of suicidal ideation, the highest level of having of having physical ailment complaints regarded to to mental health issues, are children of affluence. These are homes with annual incomes of one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars or more. Those are all that's where all the at risk kids are. Right. And so it's not that focusing on the family is 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 the problem. It's that we've under underestimated the value of presence. And that's what kids really need to thrive. And when they don't have presence from both their mom and their dad, they they actually begin to to unravel. Does that that make sense? Yeah, Oh, absolutely. It makes sense to my ears. But I don't think it makes cultural sense. I mean, I, I don't think where where are the role models that are exhibiting that? Because it, I mean, would your life be better on a buck twenty, one hundred twenty five, or on forty? And most people, just the culture tells us, well, obviously, one hundred twenty five thousand is going to be a better life. I mean, everywhere, everything reinforces that. And and so I, and I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you, but it's it just, I mean, it, it is so countercultural. Right. Yeah. And, and so what's interesting is that is that we believe that sort of high incomes and high standards of, and high standards of living are the things that allow kids to thrive. But when you look at the outcomes, the mental health outcomes, the substance abuse outcomes in those communities, it's obviously not true. Right. Now, of course, you know, well, are you saying people should be poor? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is. If you if you believe that 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 the the key to children thriving is them living in the most comfort possible, uh, you are going to be in for a high level of disappointment because that is not the variable that contributes to both thriving or resilience. The most resilient kids are not the kids that grew up. In, in, in excessive comfort, 
It's the ones that had to deal with a little bit of struggle and discomfort, right? Yeah. And so if you want resilient kids, having a, an, an amazingly high income isn't the way to produce it at all. Now, it's also true that I'm not saying, well, they should be living, they should be homeless. I'm not saying that either. But in America, we have choices, very wealthy, and we can choose to live below our means and be, and be more present. Because place matters a lot. There's some, there's some research that just came out in the last two weeks that, that showed that the neighborhood that children are raised in uh, is, a, is a, a far more effective predictor of their thriving and, and young adulthood than we had previously thought. And so, and so having friends in the neighborhood, having adults in the neighborhood that are, that are role models, having adults around that are aspirational, uh, having a sense of like-mindedness in terms of, of their peers, all one and the same things, those are all really important in terms of, in, in terms of producing the variables for, for thriving and resilience. And so the neighborhood that you grow, that you choose to live in, Really, really does matter, and that can also work in, in negatively as well. If you're in a community, I've seen this. I've seen this over the years. If you live in a community where what it means to be a teenager, even though you're, even though you're in a high income area, even though you're in an area that has a lot of high performance, again, read Madeline Levine's book, The Price of Privilege. What happens is that if if that if that culture is a culture of substance abuse and drug abuse and sexual assault that's what your kids will do as well they're going to conform to whatever culture is is around them and so being strategic about those things is is really really important and i would argue encourage parents to think about some of the sort of moral conditions of the communities in which they raise their kids, it might be a lower income neighborhood, but the values in that neighborhood might be the values that you want your kids to be around. And, and you also talked about the place, though, like right, right, being around grandma and grandpa and cousins. I mean, is is that part of the equation too? Absolutely. So, I mean, this really should make sense to people. It's, it, it, you know, this is not rocket science, but there's, there's something, there's something important about the advantages that are offered when children are raised around extended family. They have people that love them unconditionally. They don't have to earn it. And, and people who know them from day one. And so, and so what we've seen over the years, again, this doesn't, this isn't rocket science, right? You don't need a PhD to know that when children grow up around their grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins, they are much more likely to feel connected, a part of a community, and that they know that people love them and support them and care for them. And, and one of the things that we know is that grandmothers make the world go around. I mean, I've, I've talked about this all the time. Like, grandmothers are the, are the reason families function. Grandmothers are magic. In fact, maybe we should hire professional grandmothers because they do amazing things. They have experience. They have wisdom. They come in, right, without 
requiring payment, and they do amazing amounts of service to make families work. Grandparents are the key to making that happen. And what's interesting, particularly in family systems, and you see this especially with the role of grandfathers and grandsons, is that often when a boy doesn't have a great connection with his dad, he might have a great connection with one of his grandfathers. And so grandfathers can actually play, play a role of being sort of surrogate fathers and can fill in some of the gaps where some dads may, 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 may fall short. The awesome thing about grandfathers for the most part is they're available and they have incredible wisdom. And if they're good grandfathers, you want your children around the grandfather and the grandmother because they've got 50, 60 years of wisdom over, over, the, over these kids. And these are all the sorts of things that, that, that contribute to kids feeling a sense of, of warmth and love, which contributes to them thriving and doing well. And I, and I, I think, too, there's a lot to the idea of um, – there's been a lot made of the nuclear family, but in in opposition to intergenerational families, like it, you, mom, dad, kids, white picket fence, dog, bird, you know that that whole nine yards. But but they're disconnected from their and it, and there's more power in intergenerational families. Um, but so I'm I'm gonna press you a little bit here. Uh, in the kind of the free market space or libertarian space, very, very recently, several economists have talked about this idea that that would be known to our audience. And they're like, oh, you're in a tough situation or, oh, you live, you know, whatever. Just move. Just get up and move. Move, find a better job. Find a, I mean, that's that's the answer. They're like, it's liquid. Our, our environment is liquid. Just move, find more money, find better jobs. Place isn't important. I mean, it sounds like you're more on the side of Wendell Berry on some of this than some of like the hardcore libertarian or free market economists in some of this. And it – and. I'm just trying to make sense of, I mean, because I the place it does, like you said, you don't. It's not rocket science. So I'm. How, how do we yeah, make sense of this? Yeah, you know, the I've I've often argued that same line of reasoning, right? The the right of exit, right? You have the right to to leave and go find, but it's not just moving. It's it's moving to a place that makes life more efficient, and that's going to be moving in closer proximity to your family. Because you're able to make life more efficient and you're much more likely to share the burdens of making family life work when it's your own brother, right? So let's say that, let's say that you and your brother are in the same – within 10 minutes of each other in, in the same community and your parents are nearby and somebody's struggling. Well, guess what's going to happen? You're all pitching in to help each other. Right. And it just seems so utilitarian. I mean, that argument to me, I just on the face of it, just move seems to be the most banal, you know, uh, uh, wrong-headed utilitarian. You know, if it, if it can't be counted, it doesn't count. So you can't really count the love of a brother or the care of a grandmother or you know, how do you put that in a spreadsheet, right? <laughs> you know, and and but so yes, on on one level, it makes sense to move and make more money elsewhere. But then you you rip apart a fabric, and and so it um, this system is really complicated. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, think 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 about what happens when it's not just move, but let's say that let's say that your sister's struggling, she can move in with you. Whoa. 
right? It's not just move, yeah. but you move to where relationships make life much more efficient and cost effective and things like that. And invariably, that's going to be family. And there is evidence of this if you think about historically in civilizations and cultures all over the world for the entirety of yeah. human history, this is the way it's always been done. Yeah, it's a sacrificial right. nature. It's sacrificial nature, but it's not considered sacrificial because it's family. And that's just kind of, it's definitional because you love people because they're your family, mm-hmm. right? And you get, again, you get to share the, the, the cost. You want to think about it economically. You get to care, you get to share the cost of raising, of raising kids. You can, you can do things together. So this is an example for when my father was growing up in, in Alabama in the thirties and forties, you know, they would, because the families all lived in the same communities, uh, you know, one family would grow pigs, another family grew corn, uh, another family grew, you know, turnip grains, and they would share it. Guess what that did? Reduce the cost of living. There was like wash day. All the mothers would get together and wash all the clothes together. Again, efficiency reduces the cost. When you individualize... The economy of a family, which is what the nuclear family does, it, it raises the cost of living across the board, and it introduces, I think, additional levels of stress and anxiety on the parents to make family work, yeah. right? But if it's intergenerational, you're all doing it together. You're raising the kids together as a community of adults, which means that you don't always have to have everything figured out because if you're, let's say your teenager is struggling with an issue and they don't want to talk to you about it, well, they can go talk to Uncle John or Aunt Mary about it or your grandparents, right? So you have all of these resources there that make life work. And I think we have underestimated the value of of intergenerational life in terms of, of making life great for children when they can experience those sorts of relationships. Yeah, and, and that happens in church a lot too. The, the hyper-segmentation is, uh, is obviously not good institutionally. Um, I wanted to get to a few more things though. Um, I, I've heard you mention elsewhere um, too that fathers help create the empathetic impulse in children. Um, can you explain more what, what you mean with that statement? Yeah, it's, it's something I was, I was first – alerted to by reading some of the work by Warren Farrell in the book, The, the Boy Crisis, this sort of thinking about, and actually, actually I've all, I also saw it in the, in the work on, on criminal deviance for male juveniles. And, and what is it that creates the sense of caring about other people? And what the research shows, both in terms of of criminality with adolescent males who are, who are juveniles and also the simple family structures is that is that the father's role in making in creating the conditions for other centeredness in children is massive in fact boys in particular who don't have close relationships with their fathers are much less likely to have any empathy at all because fathers play play a significant role in in I don't want to use the word force but in directing the boys attention to care about other people 
So it's it's the father who who keeps the boy accountable to treat his mother well. Mm-hmm. It's the father who has that authoritative voice to compel the boy to treat his to treat his siblings well. Uh, when fathers roughhouse with their sons, they learn in the context of roughhousing how to use their strength to to have fun but not to cause harm. Because in the context of roughhousing, what do they learn? I can't stick my finger in dad's eye, right? right. Oh, if I, if I put my foot on his throat, right, that hurts him. So I have to roughhouse. I have to wrestle, but I have to be thinking about how it's affecting my dad. And the context of play increases the likelihood that that boys are going to be thinking about about how things impact and affect their father and that and that develops later on into an overall sense of of of, of empathy being other centered if if the the boy breaks the neighbor's window it's often the father who's going to really press upon the son to do the right thing, mm-hmm. right? All right, now listen, you're going to go over there and tell, you're going to tell, right, right? Yeah. Now, what's interesting is that it's not that it's not that moms it's not that moms have no role in this, right? And so, of course, moms have a role in in developing other centeredness and empathy, but there's just something magical and maybe mystical. If I want to kind of overstate and exaggerate, but there, there is something different. When, when the father is, is the person directing the other centeredness, it has a completely different impact on, on the boy. And because boys do not want to let their parents down, I think all kids do not want to let their parents down. Boys in particular do not want to let their fathers down. And so, and so when they're raised to be other centered, when they're outside of the home, they're thinking, if I do this, what will my father say to me? If I don't do this, what will my father say to me? If I treat this person this way, well, how would my dad think about those things? I mean, how, how, how would my dad think about this? And that has, that has a way of habituating empathy in, in ways that, that position boys to have a net contribution to their communities uh, when they hit adolescence and and when they hit those college years, and I, I have I have some students right now who are highly empathetic, and one of the first questions I always ask them is, "Did you wrestle with your dad?" And the answer is always, "Oh yeah, we did it all the time." I'm like, "What textbook? Yeah. It's like page 127, yeah. right?" The more the more time boys spend with their fathers, the more empathetic they're going to be. Hmm. That's what the data says. Yeah. Well, where where are you taking this? This this I, I mean I, I'm so fascinated. I love your I love your interdisciplinary nature in your mind. You know you're you're bringing in aspects of uh, sociology, um, psychology, religion. You know you're you're building this very interesting case. Um, but you're actually doing. I mean you speak to fraternities, right? Fraternities have you out to to engage with them. I mean, what are some of the schools or what are just a, you know, a few minutes of what are, what's some of the feedback you get from these fraternities when you're out there speaking to them? One of the most surprising things about this new project is I 
you know, put this stuff out on social media, and and initially I was contacted by the Sigma Phi fraternity at, at UVA. And Nick Fisher, who is the president this year of that fraternity, reached out to me and and had some questions, and we sort of had a, some dialogue. And he invited me out to UVA to have a conversation about what I'm what I'm coining. What I'm calling for this project, heroic masculinity, I did not, for the record, come up with that term, but I'm, I'm using heroic masculinity as a way to frame what Greek life could be. And what is that? It's using your power, your presence, your creativity, and your strength for the benefit of others, sort of thinking about it uh, that way. So the opposite of toxic masculinity. Right, yeah. right. Instead of hurting others, the, the, the purpose of your, of your masculine power, strength, et cetera, is to benefit other people. That's that's why you're here. Talk about a purpose void. Well, the purpose is to benefit others. And what I what happened is that the Sigma Phi fraternity at, at UVA invited me out, and they invited a bunch of other fraternities. And so I talked to all these men uh, what it means to be men who primarily add value to life on grounds at UVA, to be men of virtue and character and excellence. And and I was blown away by how excited they were to be men of of virtue and excellence. They completely bought into it. They they were asking questions about it afterwards. We I hung out with these guys for a few hours because what I learned is that is that these men want to be great men. They just don't know how. And no one's providing direction uh, for them. I spoke at the University of Mississippi, a bunch of fraternities there as well. Same thing, a lot of excitement. And what has been so fascinating across these campuses is that these young men will walk up to me and say afterwards, you know, no one talks to us this way. Like no one is encouraging us. No one is is asking us to to be excellent. No one is calling us to virtue, calling us to these higher higher values. No one's doing this. And what I'm seeing again and again and again, campus after campus after campus, is is a a, a community of men that we have completely ignored, who are looking and are desperate for something to give them direction about what it means for them to be to be uh, uh, excellent excellent value adding sorts of men and they act and they really really want it and what i'm seeing my contention is that when you invite them to higher virtues and when you invite them to excellence they will sign up for it i've seen that again and again and again and if you want to see an example of this I, again, I'm biased because I, I spoke at this fraternity and they and they made some amazing changes. Look at Sigma Phi at UVA. They've made some massive changes this year, and these guys are, are really headed toward being a model of what, of what Greek life can be on grounds at the University of, of Virginia. But there are lots of other fraternities. I've interviewed fraternity presidents all over the country, I have a podcast where I talk to them, and you can listen to them tell the stories of what happens when they call their fraternity men and, and, and 
to 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 virtue and higher levels of character and integrity and excellence. I'm hopeful because these guys actually want it. So that coming full circle, then what you're saying is fraternities don't have to be the binge drinking, hypersexualized pop culture image, right? I mean, they want to excel. They want to have higher purpose. And absolutely, you're, you're seeing it. Well, that absolutely, and and. Most fraternities, when they when they recruit men to join the fraternity, that's actually what they focus on, right? Uh, uh, become a part of this community, and you will become a better man. And guys want to develop. I think this idea that guys don't care that they're checked out across the board is not true. If a guy is interested in Greek life, he wants to develop. And the question is, is he going to develop in a community of virtue or develop in a community of vice? And the worst fraternities are the ones that develop men in, community, in communities that are characterized by vice. And if the boy wants that, that tells you a lot about him. But the guys that want to develop in context of virtue and they seek out those fraternities that focus on those things, those are the men that graduate college to become great employees and great fathers and great husbands and great members of the community. Man, I love that. What, um, where, where is this developing into a book or what, you know, what is the, what are the artifacts coming out of some of your studies? Great. I do have a, a website and if you Google heroic masculinity USA, the website's there, you can see some of the articles there. I do have, I think seven or eight podcasts where I've, I've interviewed fraternity presidents across the country at UVA, at Clemson, at University of Arkansas, at Ohio State, et cetera. You can hear firsthand accounts of what this looks like as well. And then the book project that I am submitting to the publisher in, Oct- in August, August 1st is the deadline. We'll see if I actually meet that deadline. <laughs> sure. Uh, the, the, the working title right now is, is Heroic Masculinity, uh, How Fraternities Can Save Colleges and America. Hopefully publishing in 23 then, probably? Uh, it'll or? probably come out, if I submit the manuscript in August, it'll probably come out spring or summer of 23. Excellent. Well, well Dr. Bradley, thank you for this topic. Uh, thank you for spending the time with us to uh, explain uh, sometimes a, a complex topic, but it, uh, it's been great. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Zsa Zsa.